Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. There are many uh, stories of resistance to the Third Reich. Uh, One of the best-known stories, of course, is the story of Anne Frank and her family. And there are many, many other stories of uh, resistance uh, to uh, Hitler's regime. And one of the people um, that we have talked about in the past on this program, but haven't given a tremendous amount of attention to, uh, is Sophie Scholl. Uh, Hans and Sophie Scholl were part of the White Rose Resistance in Nazi Germany. With me right now is Dr. Paul Shrimpton. He's author of Conscience Before Conformity, which is a look at uh, Hans and Sophie Scholl and uh, their story. And Dr. Shrimpton, good to have you with me. Thanks. Good day. So, Tell me a little bit about the uh, the upbringing, the fa- family upbringing of the Scholls. Well, there were five children in the Scholl household. Um, Hans and Sophie were the second and the fourth of them. Um, mother was a Lutheran, a bit older than Dad. Um, she brought her children up as Bible-reading Christians, um, father wasn't really very religious. He was a pacifist who refused to fight in the First World War mm-hmm. and uh, operated ambulances. But he had a great um, sort of respect for freedom and um, instilled in his in his five children um, a love for the truth. I would say uh, the um, in growing up. Um, he he was when the, the Nazis came to power in thirty three in January thirty three, he was vehemently um, anti Hitler, um, but perhaps surprisingly, all five of his children joined the Hitler Youth, either the men's section or the boys section or the girls section. Were they enthusiastic? Were they enthusiastic members? They were not just enthusiastic; um, they were just so keen that both Hans and Sophie became group leaders, so wow. Hans, um, and they, they joined when it was voluntary, and Hans um, was in charge of about 150 other boys, sort of their indoctrination sessions, when they were typically listen on the radio to a National Socialist um, weekly broadcast, along with many other young people throughout the country. Hmm. He was the flag bearer for his town, in, in 1935, when they went to Nuremberg for the big rally there, with about 200,000 uh, other young people where they were listening to the ranting Nazi officials in this, this huge stadium they built there. Wow, so they were... Sophie was somehow in the same mold. That, um, she, too, was in charge of girls. Um, but there was one key moment with her where there was an inspection by an older Nazi who came along and listened and then found that Sophie was um, encouraging her girls to read Jewish poetry, uh, which was certainly forbidden. Mm, interesting. So they were all in. What? When did they become disillusioned with uh, you know, Nazism? There's no particular point you can identify. Um, the major influence, I think, his father, and listening to him speak openly in their household, that he, he had arguments for what was going on, the 
rearmament, he said, didn't need to happen. Sure, it was reducing unemployment, but there were other ways of doing it. And he, he was very politically minded, uh, very up to date with all the news and sort of made sense of that for his children and gradually won them over. But at the same time, um, they, the, the children, especially Hans and Sophie, were just becoming disillusioned with what they saw um, at school and the, the, the sheer amount of regimentation that there was, which was actually growing over time in the Hitler Youth. And for Hans, the key moment was possibly the 35 Nuremberg Rally, where he, he found the levels of conformity expected of him and everyone else uh, stifling uh, to the human spirit. So I'd say those two things, the father and just their growing realisation of what was going on. It sounds as though the family uh, valued uh, learning, uh, discussion, uh, engagement. Uh, were there particular uh, writers that were important uh, in their formation? Initially not, no. They were encouraged to be very widely read, to, to take up musical instruments, to sing, to have a love for the outdoor life. Um, they read um, amazingly. There were bookworms. They, <laughs> they, they covered so much ground from a very early age, but it wasn't early on directed in, towards any particular type of author. Um, when they began to change, the house, their household became a magnet for all, so, all sorts of other young people, kindred spirits, where they could talk openly about what was going on over meals and the regime was criticized, which was highly unusual, uh, led by father, of course. Mm -hmm. And he would often leave dinner saying, um, excuse me, children, I've got to earn, go and earn myself a jail sentence, <laughs> by which he meant listening to uh, the BBC radio broadcast, which was uh, strictly illegal to listen to. Wow. How dangerous was it uh, for people uh, to talk openly, even within their homes, about uh, the shortcomings of uh, Hitler's regime? I mean, was this something they were... They they were especially uh, threat. Was the threat of Nazi infiltration of the home uh, strong? In theory, um, children could report their parents uh, to the authorities, but it virtually never happened. Actually, okay. Um, they certainly couldn't speak openly at school, um, and. Yes, as they moved up through their teenage years, they became more aware of the threat. Um, every group of houses, every block of flats had its own informer, mm. um, and that the Gestapo fed off these. They weren't proactive as a police force. Um, they just fed off um, informants and what they said. Unfortunately, um, early on, the Scholls weren't informed on, but eventually they were, and even before the White Rose began, their house was gone over by the Gestapo and they, they found banned literature, illegal songs, non-German songs, especially um, Russian ones, um, and they were taken in and interrogated and kept in for a few days and then put out again. 
Um, they were also found to be involved with illegal youth groups as well as belonging to the Hitler Youth. So they were roughed over a few times before they really began to get going on their resistance work. Hmm. Uh, where, when did the... What, what was the White Rose? What was the symbology there? Uh, what was its origin? Well, a, group, a small group of people, it was mainly Han Scholl initially, and a half-German, half-Russian friend, a fellow medic called Alex Schmorrell. Uh, the two of them, in June um, 1942, um, wrote in a space of two weeks um, four leaflets, which are essentially typed on two sides of a piece of paper and then duplicated and sent in their hundreds to anonymously to various houses um, in, in Munich. Um, they wrote these leaflets, they uh, sourced the paper, got the stamps illegally um, themselves. It was very, very dangerous. Um, and yes, they call these the, the leaflets of the White Rose. Nobody quite knows uh, the reason, there are something like three or four different reasons, including one which just says there was no meaning behind the White Rose itself. <laughs> okay. Um, so in that sense, uh, not having any pre preordained meaning uh, left it um, open for people to speculate what was behind it, mm-hmm. I suppose. Yes. I mean, one possible interpretation was... Um, it was the opposite to the brown and the black of of the um, the SS and the mm-hmm. SA, mm-hmm. Uh, Nazi dirt, you could say, um, and somehow the white rose was a sign of purity. Hans had got into trouble and at some stage had written a, an extraordinary poem to Our Lady, um, which could be linked to this, but I don't think we're ever going to be able to prove it one way or the other. And he did that as a Lutheran, yeah. uh, which was most unusual. For That's what time. I was wondering. That was just after he'd been released um, from, from, I suppose he'd been locked up for about three months, yeah. Wow. Uh, how, old, uh, how old was Hans when he began writing the leaflets? So he'd be either 22 or 23. Okay. And Sophie? Um, well, it's not sure she ever um, wrote any of the leaflets. She okay. helped in distributing them. And when <laughs> the first four were written in June, July 42, and I, there were really six of them involved, four of them had to go off to the Russian front because they were studying medicine at university um, in term time, but in vacation time, they were in field hospitals just I behind see. the uh, the war front. So work resumed in December and January, going 42 to 43. And initially, the first four, they only sent out maybe a couple of hundred of each. But once they came back from the Russian front and got much more organized and turned up the heat, they were sent out about 10,000 of each but then the six of them went all around southern Germany and Austria at great risk carrying suitcases and rucksacks full of the, this banned literature. Wow. Um, um, at great risk to their lives, obviously. Yeah, yeah. Uh, 
So in uh, it, they begin distributing them, um, a few hundred of them, in June and July of 1942, and then um, four of the group are sent off uh, to work in field hospitals uh, mm-hmm. on the Russian front. When they return in December of 42 and in January of 43, they really up uh, up the production, and now they're distributing 10,000 each uh, of the uh, Oh, leaflets. How many were? How many were there altogether? Leaflets. Um, there were four initially called white rose leaflets. In the second batch, there were two only. But if they'd removed the title white rose, possibly because they didn't want the Gestapo to trace the origin yeah. of Munich, where the first four had appeared. Gotcha. Let's have it. Dr. Shrimpton, hold it there a minute. We'll take a quick break and come back. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. My guest, Dr. Paul Shrimpton, is the author of Conscience Before Conformity, Hans and Sophie Scholl, and the White Rose Resistance in Nazi Germany. This is a story which, uh, in the United States, is not as well known as it, I think it needs to be. By the way, how well is the story of the Scholl's understood in uh, in Germany today? The Scholls um, themselves and, and the White Rose group, resistance group, household names. Every single young and middle-aged German knows all about them in great detail. They and the Adam von Trott, July 44 plot to assassinate Hitler are the two iconic ways in which the Germans tried to bring Hitler down. So extremely well-known. I mean, nearly 200 schools named after Sophie Scholl alone, mm-hmm. and then you've got to add into that streets and squares. There are three films made about the White Rose, and the last one, which was uh, came out in 2005, was nominated for an Oscar for the Best Foreign Film. There are stamps as well about them, so they, they are yeah. household names in Germany, less so outside Germany, of course. Right, right. The July 44 plot, was that the one with uh, von Stauffenberg? Exactly, yes. Okay. Yeah. So he's well-known there as well. And what about the, the uh, Lutheran theologian and pastor, Dietrich Bonhoeffer? Is he well-known as well? Yes, quite well-known. There are links between the Shoals and and them, uh, because towards the end, Hans tried to link up with all the resistance movements across Germany. And on the day he was executed, he had an appointment in Berlin, I think, with the brother of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Wow. I did not know that. Mm. Hmm. What was the content, the material that were contained in the leaflets? What was the what was the type of argument? What was the style of presentation? The style changed, I would say. The very first one really read like a student essay, very amateur indeed. Okay. Pitched at an academic audience, but essentially they were calling on fellow Germans to resist Hitler, insisting again and again that they had a moral duty to stand up in a passive way, in the sense that they were calling people to non-violent resistance, but the calls just got stronger and stronger each time. So towards the end, they were calling people to sabotage production lines and things like that, but never calling people to violence itself. And they were invoking classical authors, biblical images, mm-hmm. and in the first four, they were drawing effectively off the somebody called Theodore Hecker, who was the main interpreter and translator of John Henry Newman in Germany. Really? So, in fact, the fourth one, there are expressions there 
which you could say, you could argue, aren't Newmanian. That's, that's remarkable. What was the relationship between Catholic resistance to Hitler and non-Catholic uh, resistance to Hitler in Germany? Did they uh, know one um, another? I have read up on this as background reading to my book and actually spoken to one of the main authors, the leading Oxford man, on Nazi Germany. Um, it would appear from, and I think he, he would call himself Jewish, if anything, that Christian resistance was generally greater than the average resistance of the standard German household, and within the Christian context that the Catholics put up the most resistance. But in each area, there was a huge spectrum of levels to which people would go. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there was essentially a huge amount of conformity. And one has to, <laughs> thinking about it and putting oneself in the position, it was just so incredibly difficult to do anything at all. I mean, looking back on it, it was so praiseworthy. It's easy for us just to sit in armchairs and wonder why they didn't do more. But frankly, it was extremely difficult. Well, it's difficult to even uh, imagine the kind of culture that they were mm-hmm. involved in, and, and uh, in the United States anyways. It's hard for us to even imagine the kind of dictator that Hitler was and what life would be like there. And so uh, that itself is a problem. And then to take a look at heroic resistance, again, forces us to uh, stretch even even farther how were they found out? They were captured on the 18th of February, 1943. I mean, the Gestapo had been on their trail right from the word go because if you received anything through your letterbox, it had to be reported. It could be some a neighbour trying to set you up to test out whether you were loyal. So there was a huge emphasis on handing in any subversive literature whatsoever. In January and February 1943, there were many, many more of these. The Gestapo had assumed that this was now an international organization operating within Germany with funds coming from abroad and must be some huge... They just seemed to be so well-organized. They assumed they were just a, a large group of people operating with great expertise. They had a clue that it was just four or five students who'd somehow come by duplicating machines, typewriters, somehow managed to get stationary little bits and pieces, stamps and so on, and beg people for money. It was really a totally amateur yeah. organization. But it was right at the end. I should, I should add that when between the fifth and the, and the sixth leaflet, the four, well, three of them went on graffiti operations by night in Munich, carrying paint and daubing up 30 or 40 anti-Hitler slogans all around the centre of town, down with Hitler, Hitler the mass murderer, Nazi signs crossed out, and they did this on three successive occasions. So it's extremely dangerous. But right at the end, after writing and duplicating and then distributing the sixth leaflet, Hans wanted to go on the most dangerous mission to date, which was to actually take the leaflets into his university, Munich University, which was guarded, carry them in in their thousands, and distributed them from inside. And the, his two main helpers, Willie Graff and Alex Schmorrell, both said it was too dangerous, but Sophie immediately said, I'll help you. So they entered Munich University about 11 o'clock on Thursday the 18th of February with several thousand suitcases. It was between lectures, 
and they went around all the lecture halls depositing piles of the leaflets outside. And it was really right at the end of that. They'd succeeded and they were just about to leave and Sophie realised they had a few left and decided she would throw them down the main stairwell. And they went fluttering down and she was spotted by the caretaker there. And immediately the building was sealed off and the Gestapo moved in. And yes, they were then taken in. But initially, the authorities thought it must be a mistake because the shoals were so cultivated. They were archetypal Aryans, the sort of people that the regime sort of praised itself on producing. They couldn't believe that this upper middle class group of people could possibly do anything like this. Was Sophie taken into custody first? The pair of them were acting together. They were both taken in and then interrogated over the next three and a half days. And what was the outcome of the interrogation? Were they imprisoned or were they immediately executed? Okay, so (laughs) the film, Sophie Scholl, The Final Days, actually focuses on her in the final six days of her life. And this is all heavily based on the Gestapo files on the White Rose, which were discovered just after the Berlin Wall came down in 90 or 91. So everything, every interrogation script, practically court proceeding, is all there, heavily documented. So we know exactly what happened, what was said throughout the days and nights when they were interrogated. Initially, they each, they were separated, obviously, different interrogators, and they were just plied with questions, and they both made up stories which seemed to hold good. But meanwhile, their flat was raided, and there they found duplicating material, address lists, account books, stamps in colossal numbers, even a gun in hands of draw. And at that point, they realized they were caught. They then tried to turn all the blame onto themselves and cover for everyone else who'd been involved. The Gestapo couldn't really get anything else out, but... They pulled in about a hundred other people on the fringes and one or two of them cracked under pressure and divulged the names of the the key participants. So they were taken in on the Thursday. By the Sunday, it was all wrapped up and three of them, on Hitler's orders, were tried on the Monday morning. It was a show trial. The hanging judge of Hitler was brought down from Berlin to conduct this and the courtroom was stuffed with soldiers. It was a show trial and just after lunchtime, they were convicted, sentenced to death by guillotining. And about four o'clock in the afternoon, Sophie, Hans and Christoph Props were beheaded. Uh, uh, what became of uh, the father? Well, he survived. I mean, mum and dad did see them just exceptionally just before they were executed. Protocol broke down, deeply moving. Mother never really recovered, but father was made of much tougher stuff and lived much longer. They they were obviously distraught, utterly distraught. Yeah, Yeah, I can imagine. Did Sophie or Hans offer much of a defense when they were interrogated? Their defense is quite extraordinary. It really is. They had spent two, three, four years thinking, arguing, discussing every aspect of what they were living through, trying to make sense of it. So, Things like Leibniz's theodicy, could could a good God allow so much suffering to take place and allow so much evil? In search of meaning, they'd abandoned the German poets and writers of their time and sought answers in Socrates and then turned to Augustine, Pascal, Thomas Aquinas, the French Renault Catholic movement, and then John Henry Newman. Mm -hmm. So 
you see in the interviews, they are incredibly articulate in batting the, the answers back and defending themselves. A friend of mine who <laughs> is a fellow in law at, at uh, one of the colleges in Oxford, he gets his students once in their three years to analyse the interrogation of Sophie Shaw because it's textbook answers on how someone deals with um, a regime which is legitimate from a legal point of view, but which is enacting evil laws. So, no, they, they were extraordinary, these two. That's beautiful. And then, uh, in closing, when did the German people become aware, after the war, of their heroic efforts? When did they become national figures? Mm, that's a difficult question to answer, because it didn't really happen at any one moment. Inga Scholl, the eldest of the five, who became a Catholic shortly after their death. She wrote the first book towards the end of the 50s. That really helped to get things going. Mm -hmm. In the 80s, there were two films about them. That was another time when their profile was raised. But then after the Gestapo files were discovered and that film, Sophie Scholl, The Final Days, came about, that was probably the biggest boost. All tied in with Germans making sense of what they had lived through and people finding different answers to that and different ways of educating the young people. The Scholls are really national heroes. What is less known and is underplayed is the religious background to them, because um, the two Scholls were Lutherans, Willie Graf was a Catholic, Alex Schmorl was Orthodox. Uh, just before Hans and Sophie were executed, within an hour of their death, they both asked to be received into the Catholic Church. But in fact, it was too difficult to... There are two reasons given why that might have been impossible. One was the paperwork was too difficult. The other line given is that their mother was a Lutheran preacher and it would upset her if they changed religious allegiance. But yeah. they had become, by the end, extremely close to the, the Catholic Church. Why was that? What sense do you make of that? Oh, they were deeply disillusioned with the, their own church. I see. And they saw the Catholic Church as offering so much more. In 1941... There was an extraordinary moment when the Archbishop of Munster, von Galen, gave three anti-Nazi sermons, the last of which attacked their euthanasia program, which had been operating since the beginning of the war. This effectively killed something like 80,000 handicapped or mentally ill adults and young people. The Scholl family knew all about it through their mother, who was a nurse. Um, no one who had stood up and in public against this until the Catholic Archbishop of Munster did. And the altar servers all around Germany copied these sermons and distributed them to households, posting them through doors. And the Scholl family household received these sermons. And that is thought to have given the Scholls the idea of duplicating something and popping it through letterboxes or posting. And at the end of it, writing make six more copies and pass them on. Hans, in particular, was deeply impressed by the example of this Catholic bishop. So it was suspicious, I think, to some extent, wary of the institutional Catholic Church, which had different reactions. Sure. But above all, they were so impressed by the arguments which had gone in Augustine, Aquinas, Pascal, and Newman. They've been reading Newman, yeah. 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 It's an incredible story, and I've known about it for a few years now, and I'm interested in entering more deeply into it. And I really appreciate the time you took to, to be with me today, Dr. Crimpton, and we'll certainly talk again in the future. Thank you. Okay, pleasure. 
Dr. Paul Shrimpton is author of Conscience Before Conformity, Hans and Sophie Scholl and the White Rose Resistance in Nazi Germany. I'm Al Cresta.